Welcome to Plastic Model Mojo, a podcast dedicated to scale modeling as well as the news and events around the hobby. Let's join Mike and Kentucky Dave as they strive to be informative, entertaining, and help you keep your modeling mojo alive. How you doing, Kentucky Dave? You ready for episode 82? <laughs> I am indeed. I am indeed. How about yourself? Ah, uh, I guess so. We're here. <laughs> yes, we are. Trying to get through the weekend. Yeah. Yeah. Although that, you know, it's not supposed to be like that. We're supposed to be trying to get through the week to get to the weekend. I know, but sometimes they're a little tough. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> What's up in your model sphere, my man? Well, uh, you know, I've I've had a good start to 2023, uh, uh, not least of which because you and Jim Bates and Evan and uh, to a lesser extent, Ian and Chris, uh, we've managed to do a lot of interacting, done a couple of build evenings where we all get together over video and... Uh, for some reason, and we were talking about this before the show started, for some reason, that seems to be motivating. I would think that it should distract from my ability to to get stuff done, but it doesn't seem to. It actually seems to enhance it. I haven't dug too deeply to figure out why that is, but it's, that's a plus for my model sphere, you know? I guess so. Sounds like it. If you're getting stuff done. That's right. So how's your model <laughs> sphere? Well, I know I've I've seen pictures. Uh, well, we're we're kind of on the same page, I think. Uh well to back up a little bit, my my great experiment to remove my computer from the vicinity of my workspace was an abject failure. Well, it had unintended consequences. It did. And we've talked about that a little bit before, but so the model sphere this week was test driving a new setup. I ordered a monitor swing arm mount for an extra monitor we had around here that actually had wall mount and swing arm mount. There's the, the four screw holes on the back of it. Yeah. Had to spend some time finding a, a new uh, longer HDMI cable. But anyway, I took everything apart, moved my PC over closer to my workbench, where the little short cable I had would actually reach this new monitor. Got the new monitor on. We had a nice session with Evan McCallum the other night. I got some stuff done. I like that. I like uh, being able to because even before before I took upon myself to move my computer arrangement to where it was actually behind me instead of 90 degrees to my right or my left, I mean, my computer still is. But having the monitor right there off stage right of my workspace, I just got to kind of look over there and I moved the camera over there to get a shot across my bench. And and uh, I don't know. I like it. I think I'm going to pick up a couple more things I need to make that a little more robust of an arrangement and go from there. Well, I'll be honest with you. You're, uh, I like, I like the changes you've made to your setup, and it kind of has me rethinking the way mine is. Um, so, who knows? Down the road, we may we may see a redo of my setup as well. But uh, again, I think that both of us probably hadn't realized how online live interacting with other modelers we know had become a really important part of our modeling experience. 
Yeah, exactly. And that hey, that's fantastic. Three years ago, did I think I'd be doing it? No, I'm. <laughs> you're you're in the basement having Skippy over every month or something. Exactly. Or I'm sitting at my model bench. You're sitting at your model bench, and we're texting back and forth. And the difference is just pretty amazing. <laughs> well, that's the model sphere. So uh, I'm assuming that you have a modeling fluid. I do, but I'm sipping light. I got just a small pour of Basil Hayden's. That's what I was drinking last night on the call. Yeah. Basil's always uh, a good choice. It's good. Any reason you moved to Basil? No, I hadn't had it in a while. Okay. 80 proof, so it's a... It's mild. It's mild, so... Sure. And I I didn't drink very much of it. I I got the basil and and, uh, some pretty dark chocolate, and uh, that's what I was having at the bench. Well, that's a good combo. It was. Yeah. What about you? Well... Uh, I'm actually doing another beer from your neck of the woods. And again, this is courtesy of my lovely better half, who for Christmas uh, got me a selection of individual beers that basically she wanted me to use as for the modeling fluid segments for uh, episodes this year. This wow. one is West Six Brewing. Yeah. It's called Good Beer. Good Beer Lager. That is the literal name of the beer, Good Beer Lager. Well, we'll find out if it is. I've not had that one. Yep, we will. Uh, Their amber is my favorite. Is it really? And their IPA is pretty good. Well, it's 5.3% alcohol by volume, so relatively light. Uh, Yes, it's classic classic lager taste, classic lager smell. Uh, This one should get me through the episode. We'll see how we end up at the end. All right. Well, mailbag's picking up, man. Well, you figured it would in the new year, right? I figured it would, and I was not wrong. Well, first up is John Pisano from Bloomfield Hills, Michigan. And he's got an interesting... He he asked us this in a couple of places. and I I don't know if I forwarded you this one or not, but... uh, his current active project is a Hasegawa 72nd skill bow fighter. Right. And he picked up one of these third-party aftermarket camouflage masking sets for it. Where it's got yep. the pre-cut hard edge mask, you know? Uh-huh. And he says that if he follows the kit instructions, that the the camouflage pattern is actually reversed from what it should be because the the masks actually mask off the dark color of, of the camouflage pattern. The, the, OT, the OTB that dropped just two days ago, uh, he emailed them and, and made, asked the same or made the same observation. And <laughs> they were talking about, you know, there's nothing inherently wrong, especially if on a masked camouflage of painting the dark color first. You almost always paint the the light color and then paint the dark color second. And a lot of that has to do with minimizing overspray and making cleaning up a pattern a lot easier. A lot of that really doesn't apply if you're talking about mask sets. You can paint the dark color first, place the, the mask over the dark color sections and then paint the light color and you really shouldn't have any problem 
something that they didn't mention on on the bench that might be a possibility here. The camouflage, I believe, that is a a middle stone and dark earth. It's uh, uh, British Middle East World War II camo. I know on Hurricanes and Spitfires in the Battle of Britain, they had an A scheme and a B scheme. And the colors were reversed depending on if you had an odd or even serial number on the aircraft. And this is something, if you're doing Battle of Britain aircraft and you're doing a particular aircraft, you have to pay attention to to determine which parts of the scheme are supposed to be brown and which parts of the scheme are supposed to be green because, again, based on the particular serial number, they flipped back and forth. I don't know that if they did that for the bow fighter. If they did, it is quite possible that it's you could paint the light color or the dark color and then mask, depending on what particular aircraft you were doing and if it had an A scheme or a B scheme. Now, there are modelers, particularly modelers in Britain, who know this stuff backwards, forwards, sideways, and upside down. So I am waiting for one of them to listen to this and reach out and tell me, did indeed, by the time they got to the bow fighters, had they stopped doing that A scheme, B scheme swap, and there was only one scheme? Or is it possible that that's an explanation for what we're seeing here? So I don't know. Or it's just a gaff. I have to wonder if these mid east schemes were painted in theater, were factory painted. I, I think they were factory painted. I, I don't know. Yeah. Never thought about that much. I'll tell you one other thing, though, to, to, to round this out is with all these uh, contemporary painting techniques, all the marbling and, and pre shading and stuff, it might actually be advantageous to paint the dark color first. You know, that 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 is possible. I hadn't thought about all the variations of that. You are given, if you're going to do marbling, pre-shading, post-shading, you know, uh, or whatever panel effects or whatever modern technique it is, it is possible that there could be advantages to painting the dark color first. I just hadn't thought about it. So while it does seem kind of contrary to present wisdom that you usually hear, just as a general note, painting the light color first is easier. Yes. Uh, it's there's that's no hard fast rule so true enough true enough all right good one i'll have to go i get caught up on otb and see how they handled it uh, and you know i think he asked me this a while back so to, this is to john and everybody just general one more thing while i'm thinking about it uh if somebody sends me an email and i don't get back in three or four days it's probably because i'm just sitting on it for the episode yeah so especially if it's not doesn't seem like it's time sensitive yeah so, so I think I've had John's for a while. So John didn't mean to, to I, I wasn't blowing you off. I was just <laughs> sa- saving up. <laughs> All right. Ricardo Antonio Montez from Honduras. Yes. Our co- correspondent from Honduras. Yeah. He's about the third time he's written in. Yep. Well, he's wishing us a belated uh, new year and wishes us well for the show. Well, thank you for that. Same to you. Uh, now he says his mojo has been very low lately cause he's been, uh, quote, captured with, uh, 
updating his postage stamp collection, of which includes a lot of uh, aviation thematic stamps. And this is interesting. Updating his Lego Classic Space Collection. Now, I don't know how familiar you are with Legos, Dave. But, oh, God. Uh, not only am I f- familiar with Legos, I'm so familiar with Legos that I know what Lepin is. Well, let me ask you this. Hmm. You know the little minifigs that all the sets have in them now. Mm-hmm. The little posable ones. Right. Well, this classic space set that was introduced in the late 70s was the introduction of those little figures. Oh, was it really? Yeah, they didn't exist before the before this series of Legos. This is the, this is the first thematic set that a Lego ever did, I think. And it was kind of tied into all the sci-fi, space, Star Wars, Battlestar Galactica, Buck Rogers, all that was on TV and <laughs> its theaters. And so they, they kind of had this generic, and it was a really big collection too. So he's got his work cut out for him. You're bringing back uh, uh, memories of Aaron Rodgers in a uh, gold LeMay jumpsuit. That's Aaron Gray. Or Aaron Gray. Damn, you're right. <laughs> well, that's what he's been doing, and he thinks he'll get back into the plastic model soon enough. But, uh, well, thanks, Ricardo, for writing in from Honduras. Yep. Good luck with your Legos, and uh, don't step on them in the dark in the middle of the night. <clears throat> Absolutely the worst. John McAvoy, he hit me up this time and not the uh, Facebook Messenger. He was uh, he went back and listened to episode twenty one again, T thirty four mythical podcast, and he was curious uh, if anyone had had fixed Cyber Hobby's nineteen forty two model STZ T thirty four, and he's because he sees Dragon has has released it again in twenty twenty two. Well, the, the answer is the short answer is no. Nobody's fixed. They've not fixed it yet. The recently defunct again TMD Tiger Model Designs had a full kit. Full, full kit made out of resin. Yeah, full resin kit of an STZ that came out not too long after that Dragon kit did. Uh, and he's exactly what is the issue with the upper hull? I, I'm, I'm pretty sure it's too short. I think that's the issue. It won't fit the lower hull without a lot of work. Huh. I wonder how that happened. If, if you can, well, they had design team A doing this part and design team B <laughs> doing this part, and they never built the thing. That's how that happened. The money grab. Gotcha. <laughs> I am surprised that there are not multiple kits of that version, given how iconic, I mean, given the history of of Stalingrad and all that stuff, I am just surprised that every armor kit manufacturer doesn't have that version of the T-34 as their T-34. I understand it might not have been built as much as other versions, but still. I, I think that thing's so nuanced that people are scared of it, possibly. Well, that, that would make sense, especially if, yeah. the, if, the, if the references are, are not 100% clear. And it's if you do the, the hull and turret for that version... That's all you can do with it. You can't, the parts aren't portable to other factory builds. Gotcha. Because of the details on them. So it's kind of a one and done from a tooling standpoint, I think. Maybe right. not that bad, but it's probably close. Yeah. So we'll see. You know, I, I'm I'm hoping that, uh, I don't know, I mean, you know, many arts running through all these T-34s, 85s. Yeah. And Ryfield's doing the same thing. Uh, we'll see if. 2023 has any new new 76 millimeter gun tanks coming out well and from what i understand both those lines mini art and rifle are both 
beautiful kits. You know, the ones they've done so far. Oh, yeah. So I, we'll see. We don't know yet. That a year is young, Dave. Yeah. Leo Posner. He's from Philadelphia. He's written mm-hmm. before. Uh, what's he got going on? Oh, he went on a international work assignment in Singapore in 2022. So he hasn't written in since uh, the 30th of December, 2021. Oh, okay. I- so that's where he went. <laughs> <laughs> Ah, uh, 2022 was a banner year, a banner year in his model sphere because he's on temporary assignment. Well, extended assignment. He, uh, I guess he's over there without his family. Right. Which has afforded him some modeling time he might not get. I'm sure he misses his family, but, uh, sure. Uh, gets, gets come home from work and, uh, go back to the apartment and have some modeling time. Now he was big into commercial airliners. We have seen a lot of his work. Right. And, uh, He's got a bucket excavators working working on Ravel's old harbor tugboat. Now that's what you call eclectic B twenty four J. Couple a couple other things. There's a lot of cool stuff on here. Still some airliners in there, but uh, so he's got more modeling time in. That's one thing. But uh, apparently he's got four or five well stocked hobby shops within a ten minute ten minute Uber drive of his apartment in Singapore. I you know now I've been to China twice, uh, and I did actually stop into a a small hobby shop or two each time but since i wasn't there on on strictly a vacation i didn't get a chance to seek out some of the some of the bigger hobby shops specifically looking for hobby related stuff and i've got to think if you're in singapore on business for an extended period of time it's going to afford you the ability to go looking Oh yeah, true. I know I did. I mean, I went on extended travel, but we had some time to go look around when I was in China and Hong Kong, and it was well, it was a lot of fun. Yeah. Uh, he says he also came across some some older kits. I guess the old Aurora Gigantics, the Tarantula, and the Scorpion. The oh Rams. yeah, I remember those. Frank Frankenstein, Creature of the Black Lagoon. Now he says he's unaware that AMT Ertl and Aurora had reissued these kits to some degree, and he asked, "Do we see?" A collectible market for older kits and or well, the companies with the molds just keep reissuing them and eliminating the value. Well, if you go back and listen to our nostalgia episode, Leo, uh, there's quite a bit of collector's market for these old yes. kits. And it's it's a new issue won't necessarily destroy the value of an old kit because a lot of it comes down into having the original box, boxings and all that. So that's a whole whole yep. hobby within the hobby. Yep. Beyond stash building. Any, well, and, and not only that, but, uh, you know, if you get deep into that type of collect kit collecting, as opposed to buying to build modeling, there th- those guys can tell you which, which molds no longer exist and what stuff you are never going to see again. You know, they can tell you which molds are, are out, still out there and liable to be reintroduced. You know, it's 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 an interesting. It's you know it reminds me of uh, a little bit of your hobby of military collecting. That that you know, there's whole bunches of nuances to that stuff. Oh yeah, and you know, it's not the old kits. It seems a little orthodox to modelers who spend more time allegedly building than buying i don't know how true that yeah, is well, okay let's not let's not stare into that abyss too deeply we've had that conversation for an entire episode so yes 
but but anyway, there's some nostalgia there and some antiquity and and all that. So yeah, that's where that comes from. So no, oh, yeah. I don't think the the new releases devalue. They devalue it to somebody who's going to want looking for it to build for sure. They're like, oh great, now I don't have to spend a hundred dollars to get this really crappy kit to build. I can get it for twenty five again. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Ah, uh, Jeff Groves is writing in, and Jeff sends us thirteen new pie slots for the wheel of uh, accidental wisdom. Great. We'll have to do another episode. You know, we'll have to get Jeff on an episode sometime. Yes, we'll have to do that. We'll have to do that. I'll reach out to him, talk to him. Maybe, you know, Jeff's an interesting guy with a a whole lot of interesting life experience. And, in fact, a really good modeler as well. So I'd love to get him on here sometime. All right. And finally, from the uh, email side of the mailbag, Mr. Michael Karnaka from uh, New York City. Uh-oh, does he have a question for us? He does. Lay it on me. What reference book do you look at, consult the most since you've been in the hobby? The type of book you'd take to a desert island so you'd have something to look at while you're stranded. Oof, God. <laughs> um, this is tough. Okay, I'm going to take two books. That's fine. Okay. What, and, okay, I'm, I'm going to really cheat here. I'm going to take... One five-volume book series <laughs> and another reference book. <laughs> Actually, I'd like to All take right. two series. No, there's a five-part series called The Encyclopedia of Aircraft Modeling Techniques by Diego Quiano, put out by MIG Ammo. And it is, as a series, probably the modeling technique book that I have learned the most from. Uh, In fact, every time I go back through it, I learn another technique or I see something that I didn't see before. Now, this is very much a a Spanish school approach. And so I might not go whole hog on it. But even if I'm not, the techniques in there are fantastic. And then as far as... The history side of the of the house, the book I probably looked at the most and the one that I go back to again and again is called Bloody Sunday. It's about the August 1st, 1943 B-24 raid on Ploesti. And I am just endlessly fascinated with that. And that Bloody Sunday book is really, really good. It's got lots of fascinating photographs. It tells the story very well. Uh, So if I have to go to a desert island, I'm taking the five-part series and that Bloody Sunday book. And I know I cheated Michael, and I apologize, but I could not. (laughs) There is no way I could narrow it down to a single book. I don't know that I could either. I'm looking over at my bookshelf, and the one that's got the most wear on it is uh, my Shep Payne modeling tanks and armored fighting vehicles. That's a classic, but man, you know. That, it's, almost, it's almost cliche, but that's, man, that's the one. I still pull that sucker out every now and then. Though I, I got to wonder if I don't have a lot of it memorized at this point. In which case, you should take another book, because if you got that one memorized, you're, you're ahead of the game. I tell you, that uh, heavy cruiser Takeo book. Anatomy of the Ship book. I'm, I'm not even to Japanese ships that much, but that book's amazing. Oh, all those Anatomy of the Ship books are like that. I know, they're all like crazy. 
they are fantastic. You, that's a rabbit hole that Jeff Groves is going to get you to go down. You may never pop out the other side. So, so I don't know. I don't know if I'd take that one or not. And on, on the history side, if I'm going, if I'm going to pick one of those too, it's uh that through the lens book on the Battle of the Bulge I got from uh, oh. after the battle. Oh God, that's a good book. Those now, I've got those I've got the older book, the, the older after the battle Battle of the Bulge book, the really big book. Right. This was this is from the through the lens series. It's a different book, and it's yep. it's even better. Yeah, and those two books together, the after the battle Battle of the Bulge book plus the through the lens book together are a combination you can't beat. No, good stuff. Uh, yeah, great stuff. Well, what's been happening over on Facebook Messenger, Dave? Well, lots of stuff, in fact. Uh, first, uh, Rob Booth uh, reached out. Rob's down in Texas, and he wanted us to mention that the Alamo Squadron chapter of IPMS USA is having their local contest. They call it the International Contest of Texas. Uh, <laughs> it's it's held on February 11th from 9 to 4.30 in New Braunfels, Texas. Uh, they want everybody to, to come by to come to the contest. So if that's within driving distance for you, just Google International Contest of Texas, Alamo Squadron, uh, and you'll come or go to the IPMS USA webpage and go to the contest link where it gives the list of the date listing of all of the registered IPMS chapter contests. And it'll have a hot link you can actually click on to go to their, uh, to go to their web, uh, particular webpage for that contest. Christian Gurney and I had a, Nice conversation because I mentioned that I had last year I brought up that I was going to get a cameo. I did not due to economic and other complications, but I am going to get one this year. In fact, within the next two weeks, well, probably I'll have to get get through my trial, but assuming the trial goes and I get through it, I will probably on the other side end up purchasing my cameo. And so Christian Gurney reached out and gave me a lot of suggestions about what aftermarket or additional stuff was good, what wasn't good, where to gave me a couple of websites uh, for supplies and purchases. So I really appreciate that. Uh, anybody who is currently using a Cameo Cutter, I appreciate these suggestions, pieces of information. Uh, there's apparently also a Facebook group that I need to join, so uh, I'm going to do that well, and I appreciate Christian reaching out and thinking of me on that. Listener Mike Fuller reached out to tell me that uh, he had joined IPMS USA, and he's not the only one. I, I have a fair number of people reach out to tell me when they've joined or rejoined IPMS USA. And I, it's so many that I can't stop and list everyone, but I wanted to mention him and by way of mentioning him, mention all the others that have, that have contacted me to tell me they've done that and let you know that I appreciate it all. Uh, IPMS USA is growing quite rapidly. Uh, we're at to a membership point that I don't think we've been in the last 10, plus years. So that is a great sign for 
the hobby and the organization. And I want to thank every one of you who has taken that suggestion and done that. Finally, listener Kenneth Bickman Jr. reached out because, uh, you know, we talked about the UMM, USA, UMM USA scribers and how you and I both like them. And he was asking which one, because there are actually multiple scribers. I think it's 001, 002, 003, and there now may be an 004. And he was asking, you know, which ones we I liked and all. And I told him I had all of them, one, two, and three. Uh, recommended. I know that Dr. Miller at Model Paint Solutions carries all three of the ones, or now if there are four of them, he may carry all four of them. They each have their usefulness. They vary in size and shape slightly, and so one may be a little better for a particular job. And they're not they're not hugely expensive, so it's worth getting all of them if you can. So I pointed him to Model Paint Solutions with the suggestion that he buy as many of the different ones as his budget allows, and he'll find that they all come in quite useful. Got anything else? Nope, that's it. Well, folks, uh, keep it coming. We love the mail. Keep the mail coming. Keep the Facebook messages coming if you want to yes. send us an email. Keep Mike in the game. <laughs> Not send it all Dave's way. Uh, you can do that at plasticmodelmojo at gmail.com or throw Dave some at uh, Facebook via the Facebook messaging system. And uh, depending on the topic, sometimes that's me too. But uh, yes. Yeah, you're field you're fielding most of those, right? But if if you want to reach out and it is a topic, uh, particularly for Mike, uh, just reach out and you know when I see them and I see one that is one that Mike would would be much better answering, I always shoot him a text or something, say, "Hey, go look at this one. Your input is needed." This is the point in the podcast where I ask you when you're done listening to this episode, if you would please rate us on whatever podcast app you're using. We'd appreciate it if you give us five stars. Helps drive the visibility of the podcast and helps gain, gain us new listeners. In addition, I'd again ask any of you who do listen, who've got modeling friends out there who aren't listening to the podcast, recommend us to them. You may have to walk them through how to download a podcast app and how to subscribe to our podcast. A recommendation from a friend is the best way for us to gain new listeners, and we continue to gain new listeners. I'll tell you, uh, three years into this, uh, I got to say that that continues to surprise me, the, the new listeners we continue to gain. So thank you. In addition to that, Check out all the other podcasts out there in the model sphere. You can do that by going to www.modelpodcasts.com, model podcast plural. Folks took a break, but they're starting to come back into 2023 now. I know uh, OTB took a break and uh, the geeks took a break and several others are taking a break, but uh, they're rolling back in. There's some new stuff coming out. Yep. 
Yeah, Scott, they took a break. So check them out at uh, modelpodcast.com. It's a consortium website set up with the help of Stuart Clark at the Scale Model Podcast. You can just go there and find banner leaks to everybody who's uh, cross-promoting with us. In addition to that, we've got a lot of blog and YouTube friends out there in the model sphere. Uh, Chris Wallace, model airplane maker up in Canada. has got a nice blog and a YouTube channel. Uh, Jeff Groves, already mentioned him, but the Inchai guys, all things 72nd scale blog. Go there and check out his blog and uh, see what he's batch building this week. Stephen Lee, Sprout by with Fretz, uh, long and short form blog. And Steve's always got something interesting to say about the hobby or whatever he happens to be yes, working he on. He's cranking it out too. Uh, Jim Bates, Scale Canadian TV. He's been on a little bit of a hiatus lately, but uh, he's, yep. he's threatened to come back as he did in the last episode. Maybe even just simply based on Airfix's uh, yep. 2023 release schedule. And we can't forget Evan McCallum at Panzermeister 36. Not only did he drop a new episode a couple of days ago, which I was just watching before we sat down to record this, because we were talking with Evan uh, Saturday night, we know that he's got a couple more in the pipeline. So there are a couple of more videos coming out, scheduled to come out in the future. And uh, armor is not my main subject, but I never fail to enjoy his videos when they drop. Finally, this is the point where if you're not a member of IPMS USA, IPMS Canada, IPMS whatever country you're in, Please consider joining the national organization. Uh, the national organizations are all linked together, and there is a lot they do to promote the hobby. And all of you who have listened and joined, as I said previously, I very much appreciate it. You're doing a lot for the hobby. And those of you who haven't joined yet, please consider joining. All right, Dave, let's have a word from our sponsor. Plastic Model Mojo is now brought to you by Model Paint Solutions, your source for harder steam back airbrushes, David Union power tools, and laboratory-grade mixing, measuring, and storage tools for use with all your model paints, be they acrylic, enamels, or lacquers. Check them out at www.modelpaintsolutions.com. Come and make it in Texas, Dave. Can't wait, man. I'm looking forward to Texas more and more. Well, you don't have to wait long. At the time of this recording, Dave, it is 193 days away till we're under 200. Yay! To the IPMS National Convention in San Marcos, Texas, and our special agent 003, Mr. Brandon Jacobs, who we had on for a little short special on his little Winter Blitz show, mm-hmm. uh, has an update for us. All right. He wanted to mention two more side destinations. All right. One of them is the square. In downtown San Marcos, less than five miles from the convention center. Like a lot of small towns in Texas and other places, they have a town square, which uh, either did or still currently sits sits the courthouse, right? Right. And, you know, back in the day, that was the uh, hub of all the town activities. Yep. And some of these have gone through some revitalization around the country. And San Marcos is uh, is one of those, so... He says they're proud of their square and they got good reason to be. It's vibrant with many restaurants, shops, bars, tap room, even a cigar shop. And it's just five miles from the convention center again. It's a good destination for attendees who want to get out for lunch or dinner or a drink. And uh, he'll have some more on individual establishments in the future. But he sent us a web address, uh, www.visitsanmarcos.com. And uh, we'll have to put that in the show notes. Yes. And a little further away, 15 miles from the convention center in uh, near New Braunfels, which you've already mentioned once, yep. 
is a historic green Texas. Historic green. Yes. Spelled G-R-U-E-N-E. Okay. Uh, let's see. It's started in the mid-1800s. The anchor point for green is uh, Green Hall now. Green Hall. Well, the green sits on the Guadalupe River, and Green Hall is the, uh, the main attraction there. It was built in 1878, and it's Texas's oldest continually operating and most famous dance hall. So live music daily with the larger acts, like some of the larger Texas country acts are there on the weekends. Green offers all kinds of cool restaurants, beer gardens, and shops. And uh, again, they've done a great job making an enjoyable enjoyable destination without it being too touristy he'll follow up with a full report on some of the cool places but uh www.greentexas.com if you're there at the show you ought to go i suspect you and i are going to end up down on the town square at san marcos at some point during the convention we'll go go down there and get us some good food and some good uh uh some good libations we're 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 not going to be eating at mcdonald's while we are down there well, and then the other was just 15 minutes. Gosh, it took us 15 minutes to get to the steakhouse in uh, Omaha. That's true. That's true. So, and, and tell me that wasn't well worth it. Well, it was well worth it. Oh, man, that was <laughs> fantastic. Well, until next time, that's the update for uh, Come and Make It in Texas. Well, I've got a little story that kind of relates to this. Okay, it's go for it. Back in uh, 1980 or 19... 19- 1995, the IPMS National was in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And I flew out there, tied it into a vacation to uh, see the Grand Canyon, which I'd seen before, and then the Painted Desert and do some of the go, – go up to Santa Fe and all. And the Tex-Mex food out in New, New Mexico was awesome. But the only problem was it was so good that when I came back to Kentucky, I couldn't eat Mexican or Tex-Mex for like a solid six months because it just <laughs> was not comparable. <laughs> I suspect the same thing's going to happen when we go to San Marcos. Well, we'll see. We won't be there that long, hopefully, to get used too used to the two spoiled by the food. Well, that's true. But it could happen. <laughs> Well, we'll move right on then to the Benchtop Halftime Report, Dave. And this is brought to us by our friend Ed Tackett at TackettZ.com, www.tackettz.com. The must-have tools for the model maker. You can uh, get on there and check out Ed's been up to with all his uh, 3D printed accessories for your workbench. Check it out. Yep. Dave, what's on your bench? What's on my bench is the Mooseroo, which I am under a strict time limit to get done. The good news is that with your and Evan and Jim's encouragement, I have been making progress. I've been building it in bits and pieces. I basically have been building the sub-assemblies as little models and then kind of bringing it all together, or at least I hope it's going to come all together. But my focus between now and the second week of March of 2023 is focused on nothing but the Musaru and getting this model done. And this is a great kit. It's not an easy kit, but it is well-made, well-manufactured. It's very detailed, which means that you have to pay attention to what you're doing, uh, more so than like building a, 
you know, I love Airfix kits. They're simple kits. I all all hail to them and all, but it's a different kettle of fish when you're building this Arma P51. It is super detailed. There's a bunch of different versions. Depending on which version you're building, you have to pay attention in the instructions as to exactly what bits to use and not use, what holes to open up, what holes to leave closed. So like I said, it's great and I'm having a great time and I love it, but it is not an easy turn your brain off build. So I'm focused on the answer to your question for the next two months is going to be the Arma P51. So <laughs> how about you? Uh, I've been busy, man. I've been, uh, I know I've seen a bunch, it. bunch of railroad tracks for the, the KV 85. So you're doing model railroading in a completely different fashion. That's right. It's a good way to put it. Uh, yeah, I've, Crunch through that, that, uh, I'd hope to get it done over the Christmas holiday. That was kind of my stretch goal, but I didn't even get close to that. So over the last, well, mostly over this weekend, uh, I've been chipping away at getting the texturing on the ties I've talked about in past episodes. And then last night I, I keyed up the bench, turned on the music and got started on it. And then, uh, about nine o'clock we had our little powwow with Evan and, and you on the, on the video chat. And I just kept chucking away at it and i was putting railroad spikes in while we were talking and i don't know about an hour and a half i had it i had it all done so I, now i gotta figure out i'm gonna paint them yeah that's gonna be fun and then start posing the base when when we were video chatting last night you actually did have the tracks and you had the the lower hull of the kv85 and you were playing with how the interaction might go and it, you've clearly got a lot of options there I do, and and uh, I've I've been uh, watching the incoming material at work for for something to come in new that had like uh, some really thin styrofoam sheeting in it under under a quarter inch. Right. You know, usually if you get a computer monitor, a flat panel TV, or something like that, there's a sheet like that in there. Yeah, right? a real thin sheet. Uh, yeah. Well, well, finally we got in this uh, new portable air conditioner for the the bio lab because it yeah. gets really hot in the where the bio cabinets are and hopefully that thing ran all weekend and, and worked and drew's gonna let me have the have those sheets so he doesn't have to because he won't need them to repack it to send it back to the right manufacturer uh but i need that to get the roadbed the right height and and uh hopefully uh i'll get all that glued up this week and the the track i made extra long so i've got to get it positioned to where i want it and then i actually have to trim off the excess right. and that's going to en- end up having to blank off some uh kind of obtuse cuts across yeah. some of the ties and stuff where sure. it's hanging off the base where I was just wanted to be a dead vertical to blend right. with the black edges of the base. So some yeah. of that's going to get trimmed off and, and glued in place. And at that point, I don't know when I get, when I get that base squared away, I'm going to move back over to the E16 Paul and start weathering the catapult and finishing that up. I, I really need to get that thing done. Yeah. Well, and that does look the, what the, what you've done on it so far looks really good. And man, that's going to be a great palette for weathering. Well, I need to get something off the bench because I'm really itching to get something else back on it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm proving now that I can actually, it's slow, but I, I'm, I'm working on multiple things. And it's kind of working out. I've got a 13 foot bench and I end up modeling in a space about 12 inches by eight inches. Well, I got the critical mess working on the railroad ties, so too. So uh, this afternoon, I did a little bit of more 
playing around with the bass and thinking about where I wanted the tracks on the bass. And, and finally I just put everything away Yeah, and uh, put the parts in some trays to hold them all together later and just dusted up everything. Cause I had shade, I had sanding dust and, and crap all over the place. Yeah. Well, I've it got, was a, to, it was a Royal mess. When we're, when we're done recording, I am probably going to devote some time to, uh, trying to clean up and organize and put things. I get stuff out to use it. And then I just sit it on the bench instead of returning it where it goes. And that's how I end up with critical mass. You could be a young engineer where I work. <laughs> yeah, I could be an intern, right? That's right. <laughs> the new crop of interns are in, aren't they? Uh, yes, they are. You'll get them trained. I know you that's will. That's right. We had a little training Tuesday, Monday is Monday last week, but that's, that's got nothing to do with this. Other than the mess part. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So, Mike, what broke your wallet? You know, I've been pretty good, all things considered. I'm trying to think what I've bought. Oh, I know what I bought. You bought an HDMI cable. I, I did. <laughs> that that wasn't very much though. Yeah. Uh, I bought that uh IBG Panzer II. Yep. That and it showed up uh this week. Well, Evan's video on it is really, really good. I know he's already got the thing built. So yep, took him five days. He, he's got to add that to his long list of unpainted Panzers. <laughs> <laughs> he's got at least three counting that one. I think he's got that yeah. tank destroyer and a Panzer four, and now yep. this. Yep, absolutely. So, uh anything else? You know, I don't think so. I think that's since the last episode. That is all I've purchased. Well, I can I can top that. Since the last episode, I have not purchased a single model, single book, single tool, or single... No, I take that back. I did buy a book. There's... <laughs> a, I bought, you almost uh, said it. Not even a book. Not, not even a book. That's not true. I did buy a book on the operations uh, in the north northwest coast of Australia. In early 1942, one of the special subject areas of mine, I did buy a book. Other than that, I have not bought a kit. I have not bought any supplies. I did buy that one book, which is a history book, So, but it's also a great modeling reference. But other than that, no. Now, as I mentioned previously, I am, in the next two weeks, going to make a significant modeling purchase. Now, not as significant as your 3D printer, but significant enough for me with that uh, Cameo 4. I'm hoping once I get it, I can uh, I can get up to speed fairly quickly. Again, I'm like you. I don't want a new hobby. I don't want this thing to turn into, oh, great, now I've got a new hobby, which is cutting stencils. I just want to learn what I need to learn to use it, and then use it for modeling without becoming a complete subject matter expert on the cameo cutter. <laughs> well, good luck. I look forward to getting that. Yeah, you and me both. I'll probably end up with one myself at some point. <laughs> or uh, if you've got one, why would I? Yeah, why would you? I've got. I'm not buying a 3D printer. Okay, <laughs> can't say I blame you. Yeah. <laughs> Any anything else? Nothing. Nope, that's We're, it. You're saving up because we got some shows coming up. Yes, probably. that is that's right. We've and, got uh, shows coming up. We've got some. 
we got to sit down. We got to do some planning, some strategic planning. Is this, it's always something you didn't know you needed. Yes, that's right. And I'm sure the show's coming up. We're going to be doing some buying. Well, I guess we're going to have to have a word from our other sponsor then, Dave. You got it. Getting the right sized base for your model, diorama, or vignette can be difficult and time consuming. Bases by Bill has the solution with their all new custom sized display bases. Offering sizes of 4 to 30 inches, you choose the dimensions you want and get the size you need every time. And they can laser engrave the base with a unit emblem or text all to your specifications. Better still, shipping is included within the lower U.S. 48 states. Built by modelers for modelers, Bases by Bill has bases and display cases for any type of model and for any size. Visit their website at basesbybill.com to see their products or to get your own custom-built base or display case quote. Use the code MOJO at checkout to apply a 15% listener discount to your order. That code again is MOJO for 15% off. Bases by Bill for all your model display needs. Well, Dave, you're going to like this one, I know, because uh, our guest tonight is Mr. Barry Numerick, who's uh, a staple around our region, mostly noted for his 72nd scale BF-109 modeling. We might have to talk to him about the BF-109 just a little bit, probably in passing. That's right. So uh, I say we just get right into that. Well, Dave, I know you're excited about our guest tonight. Indeed, I am. From Greensburg, Pennsylvania, uh, we have Mr. Barry Numerick, and uh, I know he's been a fixture around our region a lot, our, our shows in our area. He's, he tends to show up. Barry, how you doing tonight? Doing fine, thanks. How are you? I, I'm good. Now, just quickly, is is that is your host chapter, your home chapter in region, what are we, Dave, four? Uh, yeah, we're uh, we're Pittsburgh. We're Region Four for a while in our in our early uh, youth of the club, going back to 1979. We were Region Two, but then we petitioned to be uh, portioned over to Region Four, and I've uh, been there for years and years now. Our club started in 1976, and oh. you your club and our club have something in common. Oh. You are the easternmost club in Region Four, and we are uh. the southernmost club. Oh, I did not know that. Okay. Yeah. So, so I asked because for that reason, I, I, I've in in all the years I've been in this region, I still don't really know what the bounds are because we're at the southern extremity, and it exactly. seems like there's so many other ch- chapters we interact with that aren't in our region because they're south of us. But uh, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. anyway, we didn't get you on here to talk about home chapters. Uh, we got you <laughs> on here to talk about. Uh, Anything but ME 109s, right? Yeah. Well, no, like, like I say, then I got really nothing to talk about, you know, the decals, maybe Gunsy paints, but other than that, nope, I'm, I'm, I'm got nothing. <laughs> All right. Let her rip, Dave. Just to set the background for um, everybody who may not be familiar with Barry and Barry's work, I know. You've seen him all over the Region 4. You see him at the Nationals. He's almost as much of a fixture as I am there. But Barry has a special interest, maybe a love, maybe an obsession. I don't know. <laughs> we'll, we'll ask him to define it. Barry builds ME109. He knows more about them than... Anybody I've ever met, I'm sure there are a few people in the world who know as much as he does on the ME-109. 
And I don't know that I've ever run into a modeler who is so focused on a single aircraft. Not that you don't build other stuff, and he does. Uh, what was it that just got you so interested in the ME-109? You know, Dave, I've, I've wondered about the origins myself. It's always been there since I was a, a wee lad, you know, building models with my father, who was a, uh, an Air Force pilot uh, in training at the end of World War II. He was in AT-6s, getting ready to transition into Mustangs and go to the Pacific. But thank God the war ended before he did that. But he was a model builder and got me interested probably at the age of five or six. And uh, for whatever reason, I just would see a magazine or a book and see a photograph of 109, and it just captivated me. I really find it hard to put my finger on what the origin was or what the cause of it is to, to last really this long. But I've always loved the look of the plane. Uh, I've always loved the schemes. And oh, the, the, the schemes and the nationalities you can build a 109 model in are virtually endless. And uh, it kind of sprung from there. And you say compulsion, love, yeah, it's a love of the plane, uh, love of the model. And, um, but, you know, I, I don't feel driven to do only that. Uh, I tell people that I'll build something else when something else is more interesting to me. But right now, there's nothing more interesting to me, and that, that's been the case for years and years, I guess. But uh, it kind of comes down to that. Well, because you and I have discussed this a little bit from time to time at shows <laughs> and stuff. Is it the fact that the 109 makes such a great palette on which to paint and weather and mark because of the fact that it was, A, used by so many countries, B, appeared in so many different paint schemes? And when you look at it, I guess the first one was, what, 1936? Uh, 35. The V1 flew in 35, yeah. Okay, so you go 35 to... Uh, let's give it 48 if you go to the mm. Czech Israeli stuff. Oh, keep pushing. 1968 in Spain with Hispanos. Oh, that's true. Darn it. I completely forgot. Those are just such odd looking ducks. They just are, but beauty's in the eye of the beholder, Dave. You know, um, <laughs> remember the movie Battle of Britain? Oh, gosh. Not only do I remember it, I've got it on DVD behind me. Absolutely. Did you see it at the theater when it was originally released? Yes, I did. I did too. And then Air Classics Magazine came out with a special issue that focused on that movie. And yep. uh, they had some photographs there of these Hispanos marked up in German markings. Very, very nicely done, by the way. I mean, yes. obviously the plane has a Merlin, not a Daimler Benz. So it doesn't look the part that much, you know, from at least from the leading edge forward. Uh, but, uh, but they pulled it off with the markings and uh, spared no effort in trying to make these things look right. You know, as you know, they modified the airframe, squared wingtip struts right. in the horizontals and that sort of thing. Um, but I, I looked at this and I thought, I love this bird too. And how can I convert one? And it took years, but eventually I did. And uh, we've got kind of an embarrassment of riches these days. Uh, there's some resin conversions in quarter scale and 32nd. There may be a 72nd. Uh, it's not available yet, but uh, both Special Hobby and I believe uh, KP or, um, no, AZ, special, no, AZ, word, uh, AZ yeah, have, have done them in 72nd. You can build a passable model from it, uh, not a great model from it. You, you, if you adjust the uh, cowling a little bit, sand here and there, you can come up with one that kind of looks like it. But years ago, I came up with a, uh, uh, a resin plug, so to speak, for the nose and a vac form undercal. But kind of getting off the topic, getting back to your question, 
Yeah, it is both of those things. It's the palette for painting and the uh, the schemes and the variations of the, of the different marks of 109. But getting back to the painting, it, it's served from the desert to the Arctic. You can have them in whites, grays, uh, blues, greens, uh, black, night fighters, and, and everything in between. And then just the challenge of learning how to model, to do the model scheme. Uh, it took some doing to get comfortable with that, but uh, but it comes if you do enough of them. And I'm just simply fascinated. Everyone is different. You know, basically you could model 109s from now until the day you leave this earth and uh, really not duplicate very much. I know that you focus now pretty much on 72nd scale. Mm-hmm. Are you exclusively that or do you do you occasional dabble, occasionally dabble in a, a 48th or a 32nd? Uh, interesting, Dave. Yeah, in the past, I've gone back and forth between 72nd and quarter scale. Um, right. And I debated whether to build the collection in, in 72nd and a quarter. And it basically came down to what manufacturer came out with a good kit of what variant next. And this goes back to the early Hasegawa 109Es. I remember seeing those things advertised with the Kawiki artwork and, uh, and thinking, my God, this is going to be wonderful. And it came out, got it home. It was less than wonderful. You know, the nose <laughs> was misshapen. There were some things here and there that just really didn't look right. Uh, the landing gear, you know, the oleos as you got down towards the wheel, they were like Popeye's forearms. You know, they got yes. wider instead of narrower. I know, what are you doing? Um, so then they announced that they were going to fix that. And they did. They made some modifications, but it still had some errors in it. So, eh, okay. So the uh, E was, the best E was in quarter scale. And I thought, okay, let's build a few of these. And I did. Um, then Tamiya came out with theirs, and they made the same mistakes. Far too angular in the initial issue of that, and the nose, and uh, and a few other things just didn't quite look right. And they came back and revised it. So, kind of like hopscotching each other with that. So the E's were available, and then uh, I guess it was earlier than this actually. Ravel came out with a quarter scale G10, which I absolutely fell in love with. That was in the uh, I believe late seventies. I think it was. And uh, it was a very, very nice kit. It was modeled after the actual plane in Chino, California, at the Air Museum out there. And I had seen that uh, that aircraft. I had relatives in California that I used to visit. And I actually seen the thing and uh, got this kit home and was just in awe of it. I, I thought it was magnificent. By today's standards, it's crude. The shape is not bad. And for nostalgia build, it's still a lot of fun. But, you know, quarter scale had it running there. But then the, the 72nd started to come out. To me, it came out the 72nd E4 and E7. And then after a while, fine molds. Um, and angels sang fine molds and nuts. <laughs> they came out with a series, a series of 109s. And they began with the F2, then F4, then G2, G4, G6, uh, G10, which is one of my favorite variants. And finally, the K4. Now, whoever did this, it was a labor of love. Uh, the tooling... Um, uh, artist at, at Fine Molds knew the differences and the subtleties between an F2 and an F4, the rounded wheel wells on the F4, the narrow prop blades, and what have you. Then when you got to the Gs, the deeper uh, oil core underneath the cowl, this larger supercharger intake, wider prop blades, you know, different wheels and the rest of it, and to the G6, and I thought they absolutely nailed that. And finally, the G10, really, really a nice job on the G10. And I'm looking at the stack of them right now, as a matter of fact. Uh, and the K4s also, and the K4s are a different animal. They've got a different paint scheme to them, much less modeling in many cases, larger swaths of color on the aircraft. And uh, that has its own allure as well. So I'm, I'm gearing up eventually to do a, quite a few of the 109 Ks. <laughs> you put all of the models you mentioned in front of me built by a competent modeler. 
And I probably could not tell which were the better kits and which were the worst kits. But you Mm -hmm. obviously have an eye for the subtleties of the shapes in different areas. Mm -hmm. What what stands out to you? And we we all talked the fine molds really. I mean, it was a an evolutionary change as far as the 109 went when Truly. Fine Molds yeah. released that series. What mm-hmm. exactly is the area or areas that you look at on a 109 to to see if they've cat- captured the sh- subtle shapes? Just eyeballing it, eyeballing the shape. You can tell when something looks right. It's like facial recognition. You can tell when something is right. Um, the Tamiya 109 is just an absolutely gem of a kit. It's it's a little beauty, a little bit too short, admittedly. Um, I've got a set of drawings from oh, Scale Models magazine, the British, the small format back in the 60s. was yep. a very nice set of plans in there. I, th- I don't think they were Bentley. I'm not quite sure whose they were. But uh, you lay this, uh, the Tamiya 109 fuselage on it, and it matches up perfectly. Later drawings have come out, and the uh, and later kits came out. ICM notoriously tried to correct it, but it's almost a direct copy. Fuselage is a little bit longer. Um, but you, you build the 109E from Tamiya, and it clicks together. It looks the part beautifully. And if you rivet it up, it's uh, that's another story, but uh, it's competitive, I think, with any. Then you come to Special Hobby, uh, and you almost treat that kit with reverence. You open the box and you look at all the fine, beautiful detail they've done, the cockpit interior. It's riveted, which saves me a whole lot of work. All the flying surfaces are separate. The flaps, aileron slats are separate. And trying to, to cut a slat of a 70-second scale wing and build up the back uh, backdrop on the wing, so to speak, and then uh, have the thing mounted it can be a challenge. Here it's right mm-hmm. there for you. Now, some people have said that they're a little bit too too wide. Uh, okay, I can live with that. Some people put a little strip of plastic in, sand it down, and and reduce the uh, the depth, so to speak, of the slat. Mm, I can live with that. that. That's not really something that bothers me. But when you come down to it, both of them have their shape issues. The Tamiya kit might be just ever so slightly undernourished in the nose. The Special Hobby kit is just ever so slightly beefy in the nose. And uh, as you're aware, aware, well aware of, excuse me, on the 72nd scale aircraft site, you know, one of our Czech friends has uh, really gone to town with correcting the special hobby kit. Oh, He's yeah. He's uh, you know, surgery on the undercow and all the rest of it, and he makes it sing. Uh, I've not done that yet. I've built three of those and uh, have a few more that are underway here. But both of them, I think, are nip and tuck as the best 109. And it comes down to, again, just simply the shape, Dave. Well, you you mentioned your, <laughs> you have several in progress. Now, do you do you normally do that where you're building, you know, do you batch build three of the same uh, mm. kit, three fine molds mm. G2s or three Tamiya G6s or whatever, mm. or do you tend to build an early 109B or C and then a 109K? Mm. How, how, how do you, do you like hopping back and forth or... Mm-hmm. Are you more focused one at a one model by model? I mean, you know, G two, G four, G six at a time. Mm-hmm. Um, it's nothing so specific as that, but it's a very interesting question. Um, I would love to be able, be able to uh, batch build like Jeff Groves. I mean, the man can turn out eleven 
of the, the yes. same thing simultaneously. <laughs> uh, I would go insane. I can't do that th- that same thing that many times. I can do two or three, and it's kind of settled into about two at a time at this point. But it's not marrying an early with a late. Um, what it comes down to more than anything, though, is I do enjoy going to shows. And when you go to a show, you you like to exhibit. Well, to avoid fratricide, you have to spread it around a little bit. You know, you have three in the same category. Two of them are not going to compete. Um, so to do that, you, you know, build a, uh, a military version, build an out-of-the-box, now BKB, basic kit build, uh, or a civilian or a conversion or those sorts of things, or an allied and an axis, if, if the show is large enough, it can be split that way. Right. So I, I tend to do that. One thing that uh, one term I really don't like is shelf of doom. Uh, I think that's an insult. I call them running starts. And <laughs> running I've, got start. any, <laughs> I've got any number of them. You know, if you're doing landing gears, let's clean up a couple more. If you're spraying cockpit interiors. And uh, to me, the uh, polyscale RLM 66 is, is just, you know, pure gold. I love that paint. Unfortunately, it's gone. I will, I will buy every bottle I can find. I was about um, to say, what are you doing for that? Because <laughs> you know, I found some on eBay for fifteen bucks a bottle, and I did spring for a couple of them. Oh man! Wow. But the beauty of Polyscale is you can spray it, but then touch it up with a brush, and it's indistinguishable. You really can't tell. Yeah. And I don't know of another paint. Some people say AK will do that. I don't have experience with AK to be able to say. But uh, we may get into this, but I think Gunzi is, is God's paint. Gunzi Sangu translates as God's paint to me. <laughs> um, that, that's, that's a whole other story. But uh, to get back to your question, uh, it's two at a time, and I'm comfortable with that. That's enough where you can have some economy of scale by doing it twice, having the airbrush out and spraying two of them at the same time and that sort of thing. Beyond that, just diffuses it a bit much, and I'm too much charging towards the finish line to, to really go that far. Now, is is your ultimate goal to build one? Well, I've accused you at more than one show of attempting to build every work number ever in existence. <laughs> uh, Thirty three thousand. Yeah. More seriously, are you really attempting to build one of every type, subtype, and prototype? Yes. Okay. Uh, simple answer is yes, and also. Uh, every marking that they, fl- every nationality that they flew in, and I think right now about a third of the collection is non-German. Everything from Japanese, captured British, French, American. Uh, I haven't done a Russian one yet, but that will come at some point. Uh, all the Axis allies, Romanian, both before and after the armistice. Uh, Finnish oh, again, yeah. both before and after. Uh, one of my favorites was uh, right after the Tamiya kit came out, and, and it is a little gem. Um, doing the uh, Conte Casino, I believe is how the man's name is pronounced, the ace who, uh, who uh, basically flew the highest-ranking POW in Romania back to Allied lines and painted U.S. markings very crudely on the fuselage right. and the wings, you know, with the American flag on the fuselage. Yep. Um, recently, I discovered there's, there's film of that right after the thing landed. There are some Air Force, Army Air Corps personnel wandering around that bird and actually touching the paint on the stars and then rubbing their fingers together. It was still wet. Um, so the paint actually streaked back with the airflow yes. from the stars. Yep. And uh, 
Exito decals had done that, and I use them. They're printed by cartograph. They are absolutely gorgeous. And they actually represent the, the paint flowing back from the stars and, you know, the sloppy way that the that the uh, the stripes were painted on and one more stripe on one side than the other and whatnot. But it's a tour de force of both painting and, uh, and markings to put all that together. And that was a very fun build. I enjoyed that one. Now, when you're, when you're, Building that many ME109s, obviously, you don't lack for decal sheets. Correct. So I assume that in addition to buying every 109 that has ever been kitted, and mm. I mean that not one of each type, <laughs> literally everyone. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, Barry and I and a couple other people were at the Cincinnati show last fall. And we're standing around talking, and the subject of how many 109, 72nd scale 109 kits unbuilt Barry had came up. We were all <laughs> asked to guess a number. We all guessed high, or what we thought was high, uh, because again, we were trying to, to overshoot, not undershoot. I don't think a single one of us came in over the number of unbuilt 72nd scale 109s you have? Uh, it becomes embarrassing, so I kind of quit counting them. Um, I think in fine molds, the number is 117. Uh, AZ, there's a wall of them behind me, and I kind of doubt I'll ever build another one, but the decals are so darn nice. Uh, yeah. You buy the kit and you get a decal sheet. Um, problem is, when you buy them, you don't know whether they're in register, obviously. That's why when buying decals, I tend to do what it shows if I can to you know examine half a dozen of them if they have them, and find one that's as uh, close to perfectly in register as you can find. Some of these are just you know daring in, in what they attempt to do with with different types of markings. Uh, the civilian demonstrator, uh, one of the early V series, uh, they called it the uh, cuckoo, but I believe it was in Arlem 05 cream and red. Now, some people have yep. interpreted that different ways, but. I think it'd be an awfully attractive airplane to do when they have the markings for it. Now, there again, that's pretty much just fuselage codes, but some of the squadron markings they have and foreign markings and even Hispano markings. Uh, let's face it, Hispano's uh, post-war Hispano decals are not thick on the floor, so you can look kind of hard to find those. And they've got any number of iterations of their kit with uh, with really very nice decals to them. But uh, yeah, that's a, that's a collection, and uh, one on the bench right now is the V thirty five. It's a civilian one hundred and nine. It's it's. I like prototypes when they're morphing. It almost reminds you of uh, what's a sci fi thing that the movie The Thing, where people morphed into this creature from outer space and then took human form again. Kind of like with one hundred and nine. So we've got a couple of them that are morphing from Fs to Gs, so kind of halfway in between that transition. And uh, this one, the V-35, is a, a civilian-marked airplane. It was used by Diamond-Benz to test engines. It survived the war. So there are half a dozen or so fairly good photographs that show you the configuration and the markings of this bird. And um, I'm combining fine molds F and G2 kits on this one. And I thought I had it nailed. I got the, uh, the camouflage painted on the thing. I went to reach for my sheet of fantasy print shop Luftwaffe codes in 72nd scale. And uh, I found these in Telford a few years back and they had everything, you know, everything from about six millimeters up to double that size and whatnot. So I thought, okay, this is going to be easy. The decals are good. They go on well. They nestle down very nicely. I thought, okay, we got this. And I pulled out the sheet and I looked and something's wrong. Looked at the photos, looked at the sheet again. It's a different font. 
not a little different. It's a lot different. So, okay, that's it. Start going through the uh, the stash of decals, which is considerable, and uh, looking everywhere. Can I cobble something together from a couple of different sheets to make this thing work? And no, 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 no. Finally, came across something I'd used years ago, and not not decades, but well, maybe about two decades ago. Some his air deck decals, historical aircraft decals. Remember the magazines and the small pamphlets. Yep. Back in the 60s, and you get a free decal sheet included. Okay. Yep. Um, but and they were they were layered, which was kind of cool. If you weren't doing Romanian markings, you got blue, white, and yellow, and, and the rest. And you had to layer these things up. Well, I found some uh, uh, two different sheets, two different sizes of Luftwaffe codes, and they were exactly the right font and exactly the right size. But these things are probably hmm, certainly over 50 years old. I would think yep. they might even be pushing 55 or more. So how are they going to work? Um, cut them out, tested one, and it was okay. It came off the paper reasonably well, but like some of the um, uh, some of the older decals, they're all in one sheet of carrier film. It's just right. the, the marking is printed on it. You have to cut them out individually. Okay, can you do this and make it work? And some of them are really sloppily printed. You know, it's uh, the code for this is D I W A U. No, W-A-I-W-A-U with a dash after the D. That's easy. You know, straight lines. You can cut those off fairly well. When you get to the Ds, especially cutting out the center and the Us with the curves inside and outside, I thought this, this might be a challenge. But uh, I experimented a little bit, and the first D I put on looked okay. Put some Solvacet, not Solvacet, uh, Microsol on it. I was going to say, up. if you put Solvacet on that. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, my Lord. Oh, no, 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 no. But even with the uh, Microsol, it was on, it's starting to nestle down, and suddenly it starts curling up on every and every edge. You know, it's like a spider on a hot stove. I thought, oh no, please, God. Um, and I didn't have that many of these. I've only got a certain number of shots with these sheets that you're not gonna find. So I thought, all right, what can I do? And uh, I don't know why. I just thought, get some white glue, get some water, dilute it, and with a very, very fine brush, paint around the edges. And it worked. The decal uncurled itself. It sucked down onto the uh, side of the fuselage. And I thought, hmm, okay, this might be a thing here. So I cut out the rest of them and put them on. And it was going really reasonably well. And I thought, okay, why don't you just stop before you've got this far? Get in touch with this guy's at OMASC. I believe it's in the Czech Republic. Are you familiar with his stuff? Yes. Um, I use them on a Hispano. Um, Hispanos have weird things. The, the air scoops are painted blue on them. Okay. Try and do that on something in 70 seconds. Yeah, that's a challenge. But I tried his masks and he's got them both in vinyl and in uh, kabuki tape. Use the vinyl and they are absolutely gorgeous. And he will do custom work. So I thought, okay, how long will it take to contact him, have him make this, get it back to me, use them before I really lose interest in this thing. So, ah, no, let's forge ahead with this project. And it was, uh, it was again, kind of working. Two nights ago, I put the D-I W-A-U on the wing, and I came down last night to continue with my decaling, and I looked and someone wasn't right. Turns out I misspelled it. I had D-I-A-W-U. Oh, <laughs> so this is a little uh, little side trip into modeling disasters. Write uh, <laughs> <since> the- <laughs> Mike, write that one down because that may be that yeah, may right. be a top ten. <laughs> oh, oh. It, Mike, it gets better. Hold on, it gets better. So uh, I'm using water and a rather stiff brush to try and peel it up. Some of it's coming, and then it starts to rip, of course. Okay, it rips into two pieces. I thought I might be able to save this, but no. No, there's a residue left on the uh, the wing, so i got to get that off. 
And uh, it wasn't coming out very well, so I had a piece of tape, you know, used tape, but I figured, what the heck. And I, I got that, and I put it on the model, and I ripped it off. And after two or three tries, the other letter came off. So both A and W came off. And I'm looking at the wing. There, there's something wrong here. There's a little bit of a, of a sheen to this wing. And is it the gloss coat? No. I had used that piece of tape to mask a natural metal bird, and it took up some silver with it, which had oh. been applied to the wing of the 109. So now I've got markings peeled off. I've got a silver sheen to the wing and, uh, and a very limited supply of additional uh, letters to work with. So you know how it is. You know, oh, I can let oh. it go. No, I can't let it go. You make that decision in about 30 seconds. So out comes the airbrush. You know, we spray the grays. The you know, I'm 75 and 74 over on top of that. Uh, gloss it up again. Get your Lindsay GX100. Gloss it up. Let it dry overnight and come back again the next day and that will be tomorrow <laughs> try and fix this <laughs> oh it gets better though i'm sorry in the fuselage i'm looking at the d here and i thought well the hysteric decal had a couple of d's and you used the wrong one on that side so here we go again ripping that decal off and uh you know fortunately i didn't have to break loss and respray anything there but uh, the proper d is now on i did that earlier this evening this this sounds like something i would have done just for yes Forging ahead with from memory, mm-hmm. and 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 not looking back to the reference, and and just thinking I know what I'm doing, and, and <laughs> lo, lo and behold, wow, that's upside down, or that's backwards, or that's the wrong one. And do you, do you remember that uh, uh, Snickers commercial where the guy is putting the yes. uh, uh, yes. de- decoration on the end zone? And he goes, guy walks up and goes. Hey, that looks really nice, but who are the chefs? Exactly. <laughs> Great googly moogly, I think, was his line after that. That, that was his tagline. Great googly moogly. <laughs> well, Barry, I got a question. Um, sure. Just curious. You've gone through your 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 favorite kits in the in the stable of, of 109 mm-hmm. uh, offerings out there. And, and I was wondering, with the rate you build and, and the number you build, are, are you resolved primarily? And I know you do some riveting and probably some scribing and stuff like that on the exterior. Mm-hmm. Uh, are you resolved to using basically what's in the box? Or are you? is there some favorite aftermarket that are finding their way into more of your builds now? Or, or how are you handling that? Uh, Mike, what a great point. Uh, I've got a shelf behind me of aftermarket parts for 109s. Um, but uh, Edward has kind of tipped their hand with the Avia that they released over the past year. You don't need to add anything to it. They've come out with uh, 3D printed interiors. Mm, the cockpit opening on a 109 is about half a square inch, and I dare people look in there and see very much. Although, yeah, you know, I, I do. <laughs> yeah, and it's only um, paint. It's only painted RLM 66 on most of them, <laughs> so it becomes so, a virtual black hole. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, but um, Mike, a, a great point. I do like to build out of the box. I, I call them palette cleansers. So after doing something that's very complex, I'll grab a Tamiya 109E or a Fine Molds G or something like that and just kind of riff through it out of the box. And I think the, the quickest I've done is 27 days. I, I got one done in that amount of time. Um, but, yeah, I'll, I'll go back and forth. And I do love detailing. I love detailing cockpits. And uh, I've done engines on a number of things, not a 109 yet, although I have a couple underway that have engines. But again, this is all becoming moot because Edward is going to release all this stuff. If you remember the Nationals at their stand, one of the upcoming previews they had was a 3D printed Jumo engine for the Avia. And this thing just blew my socks off. I mean, every pipe and line and, you know, electrical cables and every detail in the crankcase and all that was right there. 
And the thing has, oh, I don't know, you know, a handful of parts. You can add some wires and pipes here and there if you choose. But the thing is just absolutely magnificent. So they will continue that. As, as you probably are aware, they've announced that the 109F will come probably around June. It'll be a double box, even F2 and an F4. And they claim that aftermarkets will follow, and there will be dozens of them, and will stretch out over more than two years. So uh, the way I look at it, all this stuff that we used to scratch build, you will now have there. Just learn how to assemble the 3D printed parts, and uh, you pretty much will accomplish much of what you used to labor over for hours and hours and hours scratch build. It's a game changer, I think. Well, I think that's 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 true true in a lot of genre of modeling. And yes. I imagine that's probably welcome to a lot of people because I, I know the, the 109 in particular, I remember the first time I ever saw a real one. What struck me was that it's not a big airplane. Oh, no. Oh, no. You strap uh, in, yourself in, into that. You in, strap in fact, it it's, around it's a, you. a nimble little thing. I mean, you could probably fit two, two fuselages inside of P-47. Absolutely. And so there's a lot of fiddly stuff there. So anything that you can get like that, that's further down the road than folding up a bunch Mm -hmm. of PE and making it fit and all that, that's, that's probably goodness. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The the, the 109 was so amazingly tight in the cockpit. You know, if you Herman Goering wasn't getting his butt in that thing, you you could no, not for the Hyper One Twelve. I think right. If you were if you were a, a larger person, mm-hmm. you you weren't going to be flying those things because you could not get in and out of them. Well, one of the British test pilots was flying a captured One Hundred Nine E, and if you look at the photographs of uh, captured One Hundred Nine Es and British markings, you'll notice a uh, number of the photographs. There's no swinging canopy on the thing. The guy was too yep. tall; he couldn't close it. So they yep. left it off for his test flights. That's like Tom Selleck in the Ferrari on Magnum PI. <laughs> yeah. The top of his head's over the top of the windscreen. Yeah, exactly. He couldn't, couldn't drive it with a T-top in it. Yeah, now, exactly. Now, how many, one of the things you build, and one of the uh, areas I particularly enjoy watching you build, is you're building all of the prototypes in German, mm. the V the V numbers, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. The 109 V1, the 109 mm. V2, and those were the prototypes of different versions and experiments and all. How how far through the V numbers are you? Not nearly far enough. Uh, I probably have only done about half a dozen or so. There is okay. no good V1. MPM tried it, and if you look at it, it's uh, it's a caricature. It's much too. Uh, angular in the nose. Uh, it was a much sleeker airplane. As you know, it had a Rolls-Royce Kestrel engine, and they've cowered right. that in very, very closely. Um, so I'm starting to hack an AMG kit, a um, Jumel engine. Their, their BCs and ABCs and Ds are all the same kit. Right. Trying to graft on an MPM nose onto that. But by the time I do, someone will release, well, probably have an STL file of it in 10 years anyway. But um, probably someone will release that. But I've done the silver one, the V30. Uh, this is the V35, the civilian one, 109H, uh, 209H, or 109V54, kind of the same thing. Uh, one of the, well, no, the, the T, yeah, it was a, actually a prototype, 109T. And probably a few others scattered in there. But I've got a German book, a book in German of all the prototypes which is a fairly handy reference when you're trying to identify some of these things and, and how they work. Uh, another one kind of in the mock-up stage in front of me is one with an kind of like an annular radiator, much like an FW-190D, but much more closely cropped. It didn't have the, um, the oil cooler underneath the cowl. This one was sleek all the way back. And it's basically an F 
Um, but the, the split flaps, I, I guess that is, the flap just comes down from the bottom of the wing. The upper wing is solid, and that's a difference. And uh, a few other minor, you know, nuances that go back to the 109E on this thing as well. Certainly a different problem. Well, one of the ones that I remember you building from not too gosh awful long ago uh, was one of the prototypes. And the problem was there were only like six existent photographs of the thing. Yeah, that was the V30. Um, okay. uh, the silver one. Is that the right. one you're referring to? Yeah, yeah. that's it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, just about six photographs of it, but enough to give you a feel for what they were doing. Again, it's a, a 109G power aid, so to speak, bolted onto a 109F. And um, it had some other characteristics of early Gs and a pressurized cockpit. So the uh, rear head armor was a, an actual shelf in the back of the swinging part of the canopy and had two little um, the windows, basically. There were wedge-shaped windows in the on the upper corners of this thing, which were kind of fun to do. I made those out of clear sheet plastic and made um, 5,000 styrene masks and just glued <laughs> those on with diluted uh, white glue because tape, I couldn't cut a tape that close. Sure. But you can sand you can sand 5,000 card to get it to the shape you want. And then the beauty of it too, just take it off and put it on the other side. It's exactly the same thing. So you could paint both sides of this thing, RLM 66, and have those little windows pretty much made up on both sides. But that was a lot of fun. You know, there are very, very few silver 109s. Well, uh, see, and and that's the thing. We all think of 109s as unbelievably documented, that there's just uh, <laughs> a plethora of... Mm-hmm of reference on all of these things but mm-hmm. even even with the 109 there are particular subtypes subunits oh, yeah. whatever that oh, yeah. there's not much documentation on well consider how much was uh, destroyed at the end of the war yeah uh they didn't want any of that stuff uh, being captured so they just destroyed it all wholesale and the thought was the uh the um, the archives, the photographic archives, and apparently there was a huge truck with just hundreds of thousands of photographs. It was just lost. Mm. Uh, if we'd had that stuff, we might have known what a 109 G10 versus G14 AS looked like a lot earlier than we do, and what the 109 Airlid G10 <laughs> looked like a lot earlier than we do. <laughs> I think we're close now. Let's put it that way. Well, I know up in Cincinnati, you you pulled up a photograph. And we were all looking at it. It was a 109, and we were looking at the underside because it was, it looked like it was half painted black. I forget yes. what the story yes, yes, was. Yes, yes, uh, well, Nobody knows. I've shown this to uh, many of the uh, luminaries, so to speak, in the 109 world, Lynn Ritger and a few other people, and Jerry Crandall, in fact, um, and says, what do you make of this thing? And it looks like from the, uh, the wheel well, going back is painted black and it angles out towards the wingtips and uh, yep. just that one section of the underwing and the, uh, and the fuselage is black. I have no idea why uh, that's in the stash. By the way, I've got a running start on that one. <laughs> I'm not calling it shelf of doom. Um, I like running start. That's very, and Barry, you're so optimistic. You're, you're, a, you're a glass half full kind of guy. Well, when you, when you misspell your, your uh, codes on your airplane, you have to be optimistic. Good. <laughs> But, um, yeah, don't know what that is. But, again, the endless variety of markings on 109s. You know, they left the factory looking like this. Then in the field, they were modified here. Then parts were bolted on from somewhere else or a replacement wing or something like that. And just more modeling on top of modeling. And one thing that's fascinating, 
when the Germans, uh, I guess when they lost a plane, they lost a number in the sequence. As you know, they were numbered one through, I don't know, maybe 12, the typical Staffel. Right. Um, what they would do if one was shot down, they'd, re, they'd, they'd paint out the next one, paint the number out and put that number on it. So you see blanked out twos and ones painted there. Well, why not just put this pilot in number one? Why do you have to go through all that hassle and very meticulously get your sign painter on paint number one in that spot or whatever the numbers were? That has always fascinated me. And I've tried to do that on a couple of occasions by making masks and suspending them off the model. Too hard to airbrush that in 70 seconds. Pardon me if, I, if I'm uh, embarrassing you or revealing a big secret. The 109 is not the only Messerschmitt that you have an affinity for. Um, yeah, and this is kind of weird, guys. I'm 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 going to I'm going to start up front. So Mm -hmm. you take the tiny little ME 109. I Mm -hmm. I get the the German stuff is not my specialty, but I get the attractiveness. I get the fact that they are beautifully uh, the the lines of the 109 from early to late are beautiful. The color schemes are fantastic and unusual. I can understand that. Your other Measure Schmidt love is an ME 323. Right. And Gigan. Yeah. And I do not, or 321 if you're going engineless, I guess. Precisely. Yeah. I do not understand how you can be an aficionado of both the ME 109. And the 321 slash 323. Well, think about it. The 109 and 72nd has a six-inch wingspan. The Gigant has yeah. a 30-inch wingspan, 180 feet. And it's 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 a three-story hotel with wings. How can you not love this thing? It, it is just so ugly. It's beautiful. Um, and they're all green. They're all 70, 71, and 65 underneath. I know some of the uh, the gliders were got a distemper of white on top of them. But it's just the the mechanics of the thing. How did they ever fly this? How would you ever get in it as a soldier and think, this is going to get me safely to where I need to go? You didn't have a lot of choice, I'm sure. But uh, it is just so daunting. It's so big, and, and uh, it's, it's also a canvas-covered aircraft when you think about it. Here you yeah. have a six-engine transport covered with canvas, you know, wood at the uh, the floor of the thing, and they would be transporting horses or wounded or supplies or armaments, whatever the case may be. But it's just so ugly. I think it's beautiful. And uh, I have uh, – I finished one. It was a prototype, curiously enough. It was the V-14 also where they were trying to put engines on the, uh, the glider and see if it would work. And uh, they tried two engines – no, they tried four engines, rather. And I think four different configurations, four different prototypes. And the one that I chose was very much like the 323, but it was minus a couple engines and a few other different configurations and windows and that sort of thing. And um, that was fun, but I decided to do one right. And so it's uh, it's now a running start that has about three months on it or so. But actually, there are three of them that are in that box that have running starts. And and 70-second scale, there's only one kit of this thing. I was about and, to ask, yeah. And, and you have to admit... <laughs> How many of these kits you own? Oh, well, let's put it this way. I, I have weak will, and whenever I see one at a show at a good price, I buy it. So I think now it's 16 I think it went up from the last time we talked about it. But when you see Geekbox yes. for 20 bucks, you lose money if you don't buy it. You have to buy <laughs> that thing. <laughs> well, yes, it has gone up because I think at Cincinnati the number was 15 and mm-hmm. I was stunned by the number being 15 well, you know, when you're also, when you're building this, you can experiment. If you have enough of them as scrap, you can try this or try that, make the wing fit together a little bit better and 
you know, how can I get the aileron to fit uh, or the elevator to fit a little bit better on the stab and that sort of thing. Um, but it, it's, it's a challenge because um, you're, you're always learning new things, and the interior photographs are, are not very thick on the ground. But HPM, or is it HPH, I believe, uh, the short-run fiberglass, basically, 30-second scale models that come from the Czech Republic. Yeah. They've got a gigant. Oh, my and God. And it's done. And I believe it's about a five-and-a-half-foot wingspan. <laughs> so I will save up my shekels and maybe send some money over to the Czech Republic. Or Yeah, you can't bring it back from Telford. It'd be too big. Yeah, that's, uh, that's but, yeah, I think, yeah. And, uh, Mike, what they've done is they, uh, they've represented the interior stations of the wing. There were flight engineers stationed in the wings. Yes. Between a couple of the engines. And I got a couple of photographs of that, so trying to scratch that up and and make it look reasonable with you know, a certain amount of gizmology was, was a bit of a challenge. But I used their photographs of the prototype model as they were building it as some of my references. And now you have influenced Mr. Hustad, and he, uh, <laughs> uh, he credits you with uh, uh, bringing him into riveting. Mm-hmm. He is my hero, by the way. Well, and mine too. Now... I want to see him influence you into doing a diorama with a crated folded up 109 being rolled into the interior of an open door 323. Who's to say that it didn't happen, right? Exactly. <laughs> but Steve only models from existing photographs. That we did yes. not have. Well, you, you could one-up him with his sheep diorama. You could build a gigant with like... Two dozen horses coming out of the clamshell. The oh, now that you've got, yeah, there are a lot yeah. of photographs of uh, <laughs> certain various livestock around three twenty threes, old scale doo-doo around them as well. I guess you could, you could do <laughs> it's that. It's like but, Noah's uh, Ark. <laughs> yeah, you don't want to be the guy shoveling out the three twenty three at the end of the six hour flight. <laughs> Hopefully, they had enough hay in there because you know those horses are getting a little bit nervous the way that thing would. Move around exactly. if you, uh, uh, again. If you search on uh, on YouTube, or there's a, a German film archive site, I think it might be just called Archive, I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, where they've yep. got hundreds and hundreds of videos. And if you search for 323, you will find some absolutely fascinating stuff. These yep. things in flight, taking off, landing, some of the banking they did with this, you know, that made me very nervous. And they had to be an unloaded airplane, or everything would have fallen out the side of the thing again, being canvas. Um, but, uh, yeah, there's some fascinating stuff there. But in dioramas, yeah, I do have one that uh, I would like to talk to Mr. Husted about his techniques and do. Uh, at Neubiberg, at the end of World War II, uh, JG-52 surrendered a bunch of 109s and FW-190s and what have you. And uh, they were very neatly lined up for a while, and then they began to be shoved off to the side of the airfield. And then there was basically a junkyard. And how they did it, I don't know, but there is a 109G10 in Hungarian markings on top of an ME262. It's kind of angled down towards the nose. The engine is exposed on it, so we might have to wait for Edward to come out with a G10 in the engine to make that easier. But it's a natural metal ME262 and a 109 on top, and both of them are remarkably intact. Uh, some bent flaps on the, on the 109, the landing gear is down, the landing gear covers, I believe, are still on it. Uh, but it would be just a fascinating diorama. And there are photographs of GIs photographing other GIs in front of this thing. So it might hopefully, you know, pull something that would be light years beyond or before, uh, below what Steve Hustad could do, but something that would approximate that. That's that's a scene I've always wanted to do. Well, back to Dave's comment. We, we've talked a lot about generalities about uh, modeling the 109 and, and, and such. But Dave brought up the riveting, and I know Steve is – 
talked about that to us about getting on that bandwagon. Uh, mm-hmm. We got to get we got to get one one technique primer out of you while we got you here. Okay. How would you suggest someone get started down that route, and and, and be it uh, technique or or mm-hmm. materials and tools with riveting specifically? Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Um, Rosie the Riveter. I've tried them all. And Rosie the Riveter is a photo-etched wheel, very smoothly attached to a wooden handle. It's ergonomically very nice. It fits in your hand very well. Riveting is like playing a musical instrument. You have to practice at it quite a bit to get reasonably good at it. And I did this on practice birds for years before I felt comfortable. First one I did was a, uh, in fact, it's sitting right next to me. It's a, an Iraqi. It's another whiffer. An Iraqi 109. Of course, I never had them, but uh, is a Tamiya kit that I uh, finally went ahead and riveted the whole thing. If you put a riveted model that, again, with Rosie the Riveter, whatever you use, next to one that's not, there is absolutely no comparison between the two. The visual depth that comes from the riveting, the way it holds the wash, if you use oils for wash, it'll collect around the rivets and panel lines and that sort of thing. And it's just that much more captivating to look at that than everything else looks boring when you put it next to it. Library Yackel, I hope I'm pronouncing his name correctly, in the Czech Republic, was one of the first that I saw do this. Oh, well, yeah. yeah. And he does a magnificent job. Oh, God. Un- oh. Unbelievable. Uh, he's a spectacular model in every sense. You know, from, uh, and again, we get into a craftsman versus artists. And that's right. His book is fantastic. Truly. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Um, and he started doing this, and I thought, you know, let's try that. And that I saw Blenheim, I think at maybe a Dayton Regional or something, in 72nd scale. And the modeler had riveted that, and I thought, okay, this is it seeing it in the flesh. And that looks very, very, very nice. Like I say, it adds a depth to it that you don't, just don't get anywhere else. So just start experimenting uh, on parts uh, here and there, a wing here, a fuselage there. Um, but again, Rosie the Riveter, and for 72nd scale, I use the point for uh, 0.40. I believe that's millimeters. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, and again, it's uh, it's it's just a very smoothly uh, operating tool. As far as doing wings and lots of straight lines, I've got a flexible steel band, so to speak. It's almost like a roller, but it's probably you know five thou or, or three thou. You know, one flexible like an like an erasing template, if you remember those. Right. Uh, and you tape that to the wing, and you just very carefully go over it, you, being careful not to override it or wander away from it. That's that's where the practice comes in. But uh, working on fuselages, um, 109s are riveted along fuselage stations. Uh, There are nine of them. And it's kind of interesting. They go front and back of one station, then nothing. Front and back of the next station, then nothing. And that's how it is. There's no way really in my mind to do that with a guide, with a mask uh, or ruler or anything like that. So what I do is take a pencil and I'll darken the panel line with the pencil and then just very carefully by hand go top to bottom. And then go the next one. And uh, you, you get the wheel and you have to keep the panel line to the left of the wheel, so to speak, so you can see where you're going. But uh, that's how I do that. And then the 109s were also clamshells. And there were two halves, kind of like a false World War I plane. Right. They were riveted together. So the panel line exists on the top and the bottom, as they do in a 110 and an ME262 and many of the things that Messerschmitt had built. And for years, I had to write on my uh, my description on the model when I'd enter it on a, in a contest. It says the seam on the fuselage spine belongs there. Yes. <laughs> Every now and then, now I think that's pretty much common knowledge. But for that, uh, again, given the very tight radius, you've got to do, or I have to do that just by freehand running it down the uh, the spine of the fuselage on both sides. So that can be a little bit of a challenge. 
Curves can be a bit of a challenge too, but after a while you just get used to that. Practice on cheap plastic or old kits or take some of your, you know, the running starts and just, uh, you know, have at it with that. But uh, to me, it's a world of difference. And I said at the time that I will never not rivet a model again. I remember when you said that on on the 72nd scale forum after you had shown the first one that you had done. Now, I take it the vast majority of your riveting you do while the part is not, while the model's not assembled. In other words, you you do the Mm -hmm. wing, the wing top side, wing top Mm -hmm. side, wing underside, and then you put together and do whatever Mm -hmm. little riveting you need to, to, to unite the model. Yeah, curl around the leading edge. It's pretty easy, actually, once you've riveted a line, to take this and gently put the teeth back in that line and continue it. Um, likewise, if you're doing the fuselage, as I mentioned, going top to bottom in a station <clears throat> around a panel line, you can stop. You almost have to because, you know, ergonomically it just doesn't work. So you right. do the bottom and then you have to reposition your hand and then go around over the top. It's, it's fairly easy to find where you left off and get the teeth back in that hole and then continue the riveted line. Now, uh, you mentioned wash, and that is the whole, I mean, if you rivet the model and don't do something to make make it pop, mm-hmm. you, you've, you've put in a whole lot of effort that very few people are going to see. You mm-hmm. use an oil wash, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Just, just <clears throat> a classic tube oil and mineral spirit, or what, what type of wash do you use to accentuate mm-hmm. that riveting? I use a Grumbacher odorless thinner okay. for that. Yeah. And it's actually, Dave, it's, it's not really a wash. It's basically a thin paint. It's, mm-hmm. it's much more, cons- has much more consistency than a wash does. So if you look at some of the photographs and the builds I did on 72nd scale aircraft, you can see I'm just painting lines over all these rivets and panel lines, and it looks absolutely terrible. But let it set up for 10, 15 minutes and take Q-tips and just start brushing them top to bottom on the fuselage, where gravity, of course, would pull right. down rain and that sort of thing, and then backwards on the airflow on the wings. And it's amazing the effects you can get remarkably easily. You know, I see people going through all kind of gyrations. Remember the waffle stomp method of weathering? Every panel line had to be accentuated in a darker color of the undersurface color and all the rest Oh, yeah. And now uh, marbling has come into into style uh, with these photo etch marbling things and that sort of stuff. Um, but I find using this in Q-tips, you, you can get remarkable things, just dirt flowing back from, from open panels or panel lines or access uh, hatches and along the rivets, even on a spinner. You know, you have a rivet row around a spinner. You can just pull back on the oil that's been placed in there, and you can actually get grime coming back from each one of those little rivets doing that. It's embarrassingly easy. Um, you can overdo it. And the thing with weathering is when you think you've done enough, stop. You know, when you think you've done enough, you've done too much. So right. stop before you get to that point. Um, but I, oil washes, I've tried water colors. Uh, Rob Willis, who's a superb modeler, got me in, interested in water colors 30 years ago or so. <clears throat> and they work okay. But the problem is they, they tend to flow out of panel lines. You know, you, it'll, you'll have water in the panel line, all the pigment will go on the outside, you wipe it off and you're done. Oils will not do that. Oils will stay where you put them, particularly if you make them thick enough, and then use that as um, just part of your weathering process, the, the grime dragged back from, from that with a Q-tip. And I'll, I'll tell you for me, the, and the reason I asked you about your, your wash, f- quote-unquote, formula, is mm-hmm. that for me, tube oils and mineral spirits – seem to work 
so much better than any pre-mixed product I've tried. Just it just I've not found a pre-mixed product that that comes close to what I can whip up in a couple of minutes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly, and it's uh, so easy with various colors too. I'll take a uh, a burnt umber and a raw umber and a couple of different grays, and you know, light gray and a darker gray, and I'll just <clears throat> mix them up. You know, a dab of this and a dot of that. Uh, if you're extending a uh, flying surface, you know, aileron or elevator, then you go with much darker grays and some of the browns mixed into it. If you're just on the wing route, and here's the other thing that that I do with that stuff, you wipe it off with a Q-tip. Keep one of your grimy Q-tips handy. And then take that and just dab it along the wing root vertically. And you can get some you know, grime there, footprints and appearing right. things, and just built up grime doing it that way. Uh, and that's been very useful in the past to do that. That's a great idea. The mm-hmm. tip of the day. I'll have to, I have to make a note of that. That, <laughs> yeah. is, that is a really good idea. Something I wanted to go back to real quick, and this is a super geeky 109 thing. Mm-hmm. The 109s have the spring-loaded, leading-edge slats, whatever you want to call them. Mm -hmm. Slats. It it was always amazing. to, And those things are, in theory, on the ground. They're spring-loaded. They're pushed back by air pressure. They're not not mechanically actuated at all. Mm. And in, in theory, on the ground, the 109, those things should be forward. It is amazing to me. It took us so long to get a kit with those items molded as a separate item. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I just don't understand that. Uh, I think it comes down to tooling. As I understand it, when you're tooling, oftentimes you pay by the part. That's about how complex it is. You pay by the part. So that could be a a part of it. But... um, when you're building a 109, as you approach the end of the build, you can't pick the thing up. You're always knocking something off. And slats <laughs> have to go on last. They have to go on after the the uh, uh, the antenna, you know, yeah. antenna wire, because you will knock these things off just by looking at them crooked. By the way, Dave, I don't think they're spring loaded. I think actually they're free floating because I've played oh, are with they? one. Mm-hmm, I played with one down at the military aircraft museum. A couple of buddies and I went there uh, probably two years ago, and they had pushed their recently acquired 109 out on the tarmac along with the Fiesler Stork. And uh, when no one was looking, I got up there and I actually played with this thing, pushed it back and forth. It will stay where you put it. If you bring it out, it'll stay there. If you push it back against the wing, it'll stay there. But you're correct that air pressure, once you're taking off, will slam those things back in. And if you go on some of the 109 Facebook pages, you'll see, you know, some people really delve into this and they'll show photographs of restored 109s flying. One slats out, the other one's in. When you're banking, <laughs> you can have a different effect of airflow, and it was to give you more lift so the wing doesn't stall, obviously, or pushes back the stall. Yeah. And under certain circumstances, you can actually have an asymmetrical extension of those slats. Now, if you didn't level flight, you'd have an issue. Or if one jammed on you, you'd have an issue. Which brings us to the eternal question. Underneath the slats, <clears throat> what's it painted? Oh, yeah, the underside of the slat, what color is it? The eternal question of underneath the slats, was it O2 in the early birds? Was it uh, the camouflage greens and grays? <clears throat> and you can see photographs kind of demonstrating both. I've seen more photo- more photographs that show the camel underneath the slat. <clears throat> was it part of the interior? Not really, because when slats out, that's the exterior of the wing. 
Right. And this 109 G10 that I mentioned sitting on top of the 262, it's at such an angle both slats are out, and you can clearly see the demarcation of the color line going in that area underneath the slats on the wing. So that made me a believer. And that kind of makes sense in theory. On the ground, most of the time, now, those slats got pushed back all the time. But yeah. in theory, if this thing's in the hangar and you're repainting it, mm-hmm. those slats are probably going to be out more often than they're going to be in. Mm-hmm. 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 I can see how that makes sense. But uh, I was just amazed it took so long to get one with those molded as separate parts. In 72nd scale, I think the special hobby is the first. Yes. The Edouard Avia is, is the next. And I'm, I assume they mentioned that they were going to build off of the uh, the Avia with the rest of the 109 line. There'll be some things coming to them. The wheels, by the way, are superb. <clears throat> separate uh, hubs, separate uh, tires, and two different variations of each for the Avia. I mean, it's it's they're, they're simply beautiful. And they'll yep. continue that with the rest of the line. But um, then they have the slats on that, so we can assume that uh, all forward... Uh, issued 109s from them will have that, which is, it's a blessing. When you try and cut those things out, it's it's not easy. Yeah. So how far do you think they'll take the 109 series? Are they going to go starting at the E, or are they going all the way back to the A? Yeah, I think the E is theirs. I think that was done, Edward, in collaboration with Special Hobby. Right. And in fact, Edward has just released a boxing of that. So you can see their hand in that when you compare the 109E with the Avia. You can see the same features, so to speak. So they're going to go with the Fs next, uh, the F2 and F4 uh, coming in June. Uh, I think in the fall and September, they plan to do a G2, G4, and then continue through G6 all the way through G10s and Ks. So they'll continue going back. You don't think they'll go earlier than the E? You don't think they'll go into the Jomo, the Jumo? Uh, a through D's. Oh, I, I certainly hope they do. Uh, I do too. Oh, yeah. The AMG kit is a beautiful piece of work. It's, yes. it's very, very nicely engineered for the most part. You know, some, some of the parts don't fit quite well. And they did something really weird with the underwing surface. You know, usually you'll just track back and the flaps and the ailerons will be on both sides or only on one side. In this case, they carved out the lower wing in kind of a wedge heading towards the wing tip. So you have to fill that in. It's not along any natural panel line at all. And it just mystifies me why they did that. I was going to say, you you always wonder whenever they put something where there is no panel line, mm-hmm. why in gosh name did they do that? Yeah, this curves over various panel lines. So you yes. have to fill, you have to rescribe, and you know, that's lots of fun. That's always the shape fun. Of it, oh, they nailed the shape. Uh, prior to that, you had the Heller kit and some attempts by Sword and a few other manufacturers that weren't even close. But uh, this, again, appears to be someone's labor of love. They yep. did a very, very nice job on that. And I, I, I'm, I'm weird. I think the, the, the B through D are really attractive airplanes. Nobody agrees with mm-hmm. me, but I, I just love Oh, you, you've got a friend here with that. I agree with you. <laughs> yeah, the Jumo Engine 109s. Yes. Uh, not too many marking choices. You know, you could do the Swiss, uh, yeah. which are lovely with all the stripes and whatnot. They're very, very striking birds when you do that. Of course, uh, the Spanish Civil War, you know, later yeah. Spanish use of them. <clears throat> you can even find them with raudels. Yep. Used as trainers by the Spaniards after the uh, so after World War II, in fact. Well, I, um, I particularly like the phony war clashes between the French uh, uh, Hawk seventy fives and the one hundred and nine Ds. Absolutely, that'd be an interesting uh, 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 made uh, matchup, so to speak. Dogfight double. Yeah, 
Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It's on my list. Well, guys, we're getting close to our allotted time here. Dave, you got anything else for Barry? Oh, well, I could talk. I could talk with Barry all all night long. Uh, quite, <laughs> and we have done it in the past. You're right. We'll, we'll quite, have to talk talk offline some yes. in the future at the shows and see if there's mm-hmm. anything else. Uh, well, well, there is. We'll have to decide what of those things we would like to have you back, Barry, for to uh, to discuss a little more in depth. Maybe a particular kit, some nuances there. Mm-hmm. I don't know, but we'll we'll come up with something. But, I would uh, love it. This has been an absolute pleasure. And one of my recent fond memories of a model contest was Cincinnati last fall, standing mm-hmm. with Jeff Groves, mm-hmm. uh, uh, Barry, myself, and uh, your friend. Um, Larry Rob- Cherniak. Yeah. Oh, Rob Willis was there too. Rob Willis. Larry Cherniak, yeah. Mm-hmm. And we were sitting there, and this conversation was like 20, 25 minutes long, and mm-hmm. it just, it went everywhere, but it was so fascinating. And the mm-hmm. discussion that we got into regarding whether or not building faster, even if it makes you a little more error-prone, makes you a better modeler in the long term, or whether building slower. I mean, it was just a a fascinating, you wouldn't imagine a philosophical modeling conversation. <laughs> we could go off on that one. That's yeah. exactly what it was. And it was just... I, I stood there, I'll be honest with you, watching you all talk back and forth, and I was just, I was in awe. I enjoyed the heck out of it. That was the best part of going to Cincinnati oh, for me. absolutely. I loved it. Absolutely. I'll tell you, that came from uh, David Boxansky. I don't know if you remember that name or not. Yes, I do. And he his motto was, build fast. Your skills will catch up to you. I'm not sure he's wrong. I, I It's a fascinating discussion. Well, he would build an ID vac form jet, like an F-101 Voodoo, in 30-second scale, a vac form, get it done within a month, yep. and take it in, uh, it would be a first-place winning model, no doubt, at, uh, at whatever show he took it to. In fact, for one show, he had taken um, vac forms of a B-36, a Globemaster, and a Connie, finished all of those that year, and they were all award winners. They were, they were just superb. This has been great. I, I can't wait for to do it again. Absolutely. Again, thank you, guys. It's been an absolute pleasure on my part, and uh, look forward to seeing you again. You All got right. It. We'll see you soon. Take care. Well, as always, every time I run into Barry at, at shows in our region, it's always a pleasant experience to sit down and just talk modeling with him, and you never know where those conversations will go. So I really enjoyed that. And look forward to seeing Barry probably up in Columbus in February at their show there. So I appreciate him coming on and uh, doing us the favor of talking with it. So, Mike, how's your modeling fluid coming? Uh, it's good. It's a good choice tonight. I've I've uh, had some during the video call last night and had a little Friday night. So kind of ease back out of the, the weekend with it. It's a, it's a very smooth, flavorful, but only an 80 proof. Yeah. Bourbon. Yeah. So it's a, uh, if you've never had bourbon before and you want to try it, it would be a great place to start. Absolutely. Absolutely. You're right. That is a great starter bourbon and not too expensive, but it's not, no, rot, it's, it's not, not rot gut. It's not rot gut cheap. And, and, you know, it has distinct flavors and notes to it that somebody new to 
bourbon will enjoy. Especially if you want one that you're not going to be mixing with something. Yes, absolutely. That is one you want to drink either neat or on the rocks. I've finished the the aptly named Good Beer Lager from West Six Brewing over there in Lexington. You know what? This isn't bad. It doesn't have any unusual flavors, but it has body to it. It's not like drinking water. 5.3% means that it's a nice mid, mid-level mid alcohol beer, which means that you can consume it and, you know, it's not going to hit you in the face with a two-by-four uh, like a lot of uh, higher ABV IPAs or stuff like that. I can definitely see myself particularly at a cookout in the summer, having these things around and, and drinking them around the pool. Well, summer's, summer's a little ways off, Dave. Well, we had snow this morning, so uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, that reminded us that it is uh, a little ways off. But just like the Nationals, it's going to be here. It's going to get here before you know it, man. Well, Mike, we're getting down to the end of the episode, and that leaves us with our shout-outs of the month. I'll go first, because I'd like to shout-out you and Jim and Evan for helping me keep the modeling mojo moving. Again, I've been very surprised that we get together on a Friday or Saturday night by video conference. and Or both. <laughs> or both. Yes, we did both this weekend. And I'm surprised, again, at how much modeling I'm getting done because of that. Whereas sometimes if I come down here uh, on a, a weekend or a weekday evening after a full day of work, I'll sit down, I'll go to the bench and I'll sit down, but I don't find myself doing much. And it's not for a lack of things I could be doing, but there's something about simply you know, having you all you all on the screen where, yeah, we're making jokes, we're doing all sorts of stuff, but by the same token, we're asking each other about what you're doing, what's next, and all of that. And that seems to be highly motivating for me. So I'm going to shout out all of you all, say thank you, because if I get this uh, Musaru build done, it's going to be in large part to thank to what you all have done. So thanks. You're welcome. So you got a shout out? I do. I've got a couple, but the first one is our our list of folks who have uh, helped make this show possible. And I've, I got some. I got to catch up because I don't think I've made mention of anybody specific since uh, before the holidays. So yes. uh, folks like uh, Eric Kenser, Ter- Terry Wilkinson, John Pisano, Michael DeFelice, Barry Numerick. Now I promise you, folks, this isn't a pay to play. <laughs> Ah, folks over at Micro Machines Podcast, I assume that may be their principal creator there. Yeah. There's no name associated with, but the podcast. Ethan Eidenmill, who's an old, old-time listener. And from the Netherlands, uh, Igor Udekirk. And uh, he's hoping we do another uh, Patreon call-in show because he wants to get in on it. He mentioned that in an email. So, uh, Igor. Our first one was a real success. I mean, there, were, it was, there was a learning curve because of technology and all, but... That was not only a real success, it was great fun. So I can guarantee the Patreon contributors that we are going to be doing another one of those sooner rather than later. 
If you would like to join the ranks of these fine folks and uh, help make this show possible, you can do so by making a recurring contribution through Patreon. You can go to www.patreon.com slash Plastic Model Mojo or search Plastic Model Mojo once you get there. And uh, you can make a recurring contribution from a dollar on up. And uh, they'll handle all the billing for that for you every month. If you'd like to do a one-time contribution or manage your own recurring contribution, you can go to www.plasticmodelmojo.com. In the upper right corner, you'll see a heart icon, which will take you to our PayPal portal. And there you can make a one-time or manage your own recurring contribution. Folks, we appreciate it. You bring this show to everybody else. You help make it possible. Help us keep it fresh and new. So thank you. Indeed. Got another shout out, Dave? Uh, no, that had just the one. How about you? Well, uh, one of our old friends from the club who's actually like me, he's local to Lexington, not Louisville. Mr. Randy Fuller has resurfaced on the Facebook. <laughs> uh, kicked off his uh, his modeling page again. We should put that in the show notes. And, oh, uh, yes. You're right. He's be- He's been uh, flashing photos of his new F-35 he's working on in full Randy Fuller fashion, so. <laughs> Randy, good to see you doing stuff again. I know you've been busy with a lot of life, and uh, glad to see you back. Well, as a matter of fact, uh, the club meeting was last uh, this past Thursday, and I managed to get over there for at least a little bit of it, and Randy was there, and so I got to reconnect with him. It, w- it was good to see him, because Randy is not only a good dude, but a fantastic modeler really talented it was good to see him active again and uh hopefully we'll we'll get to see even more of his stuff in the future dave we're close to the end here man i know as they always say so many kits so little time see you man take it easy 